This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Brenna Wynne-Greer, an assistant professor of history at Wellesley College. The subject of our conversation is Brenna's new book, Represented, The Black Image Makers Who Reimagined African-American Citizenship, which is out now from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Focusing on the careers of photographer Gordon Parks, PR man Moss Kendricks, and publisher John H. Johnson, Represented offers a fascinating insight into the relationship between race, capital, and citizenship in the modern American nation. Hi, Brenna. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm great. Thank you so much for uh, this opportunity. It's so great to talk to you. So let's start off. Our listeners like to get a sense of, of how a project has come into being. What were the origins of this project for you? How did you get from that first initial moment of thinking, uh, you know, this this could be a major project, this this could be a book, and then getting to that end result? Sure. Um, I'm going to try not to ramble on because it's actually quite a long um, process that goes back to really um, my master's thesis. I did a a master's in Afro-American studies at the University of Wisconsin. And for my master's thesis, I um, focused on Montgomery and the Montgomery bus boycott and particularly black women's activism. And I, in that process became really vexed by the, particularly the representation of Rosa Parks that, you know, is very popular, um, in relation to what I knew. And that wasn't really part of my focus during the master's thesis. I was just kind of, you know, documenting the efforts of these different women. But um, that combined with also teaching history in the classroom, I really became um, frustrated with how this kind of iconic image of a lot of civil rights activists was getting in the way of more complex understanding um, for my students. And what I learned from doing the master's uh, research was that things that I had assumed were imposed um, kind of ideas about these activists that I assumed were imposed by a white media were actually very much or also the work of the activists on the ground for different reasons, different strategic reasons. And I started really thinking about, um, I wanted to know what the sources, you know, what was driving their, what I call representation politics, their, their theories or their tactics of image in their civil rights activism. And I thought that that would be Um, That's what I initially went into my dissertation with. And my focus was really going to be imagery and different media representations that activists um, were contending with or or at least interacting with. And I had occasion, actually, weirdly, to look at my dissertation proposal um, several weeks ago. I don't recommend doing that. But I realized how much I intended initially to focus on really the images and not so much the actors behind those images. But of course, as soon as I came to the process of needing to contextualize those images, people popped up because right there, I had to deal with the images as the artifacts that they were emerging from these, you know, different social relationships and processes um, of production and, and particular historical circumstances and each time I was tracing different 
media trends or, or images, I kept coming back to or winding up at the doorstep of these black businessmen, which was very much not my focus or my intention. And I kept trying to steer, um, steer the project away from that. Um, and I, I think I say in the preface of the book that finally, you know, I think many of us have had this experience. Finally, I had to accept that that was the history. You know, that's what I needed to follow and contend with. Why was it when I started out looking at black female activism that I somehow ended up, um, continually ended up looking at black male capitalists and their, and their work. And, you know, at, at this end of the project, I can say that those black image makers, I call them image makers, were this analytical bridge that kept, um, you know, kept connecting both the social movements or the social movement politics I was looking at to current uh, or contemporary trends in media and marketing, and then also the consumer culture. All of those things were coming together um, in these image makers. And it, and it made sense. Again, in hindsight, it made sense why I kept experiencing um, overlap in those, in that research. So eventually I just kind of decided to, um, you know, uh, acquiesce to the actual research. And um, that's what brought me to focusing more on these particular actors, uh, Moss Kendricks, and Gordon Parks and John Johnson. But I'll say even when I finished the dissertation, it was really a lot more about image and less about considering those images in a market and and the value of that imagery to different agendas. And that really developed more um, as I uh, began my work, began teaching as an assistant professor and fielding the questions and ideas of my students. But also I was the beneficiary of all these works that came out um, in the last decade, I would say, you know, kind of helping me better conceptualize the relationship of the civil rights movement or politics to the consumer market or consumerism. And that, you know, um, particularly Jason, Jason Chambers, Adam Green, Devarian Baldwin, Nathan Connolly, Quincy Mills, those works all, all really helped me um, start to tangle with kind of the business, you know, what made the representation, particularly of, of citizenship for black media makers, what made that good politics and good business um, in the World War II era. So that's kind of how the the project evolved over time. So you have these three African-American men at the, at the center of the project. Moss Kendricks is a pioneering public relations figure. You have Gordon Parks, who's best known as a photographer, is also a documentarian, director, etc. And then John H. Johnson, leading black publisher and entrepreneur, and probably the most well-known of, of the three figures that you discuss. Why these men? Uh, how did you encounter them in, in regards to your work? Are there particular things about them that make them unique for this project? What makes them good ciphers for or, or windows into histories of American capitalism and, and protest of this period? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, well, I'll say the whole project really flipped when I um, stumbled and it, I did stumble onto Moss Kendricks. Um, and I think, you know, that was years ago. I was doing a real basic search of how people were framing positive versus negative images. And I just stumbled onto this internet exhibit of um, public relations uh, referring to Moss Kendricks, who I'd never heard of, and then tracked down his papers and really started looking at him. And and that was really useful to me because I hadn't at that, to that point, I hadn't been thinking about public relations and, and a, and in my mind, then and certainly now, you know, the civil rights movement, to me, you know, not to um, what, not to minimize it or just make it, you know, sterile or anyway, but it, it really is a, a series of PR and media events. And so looking at Kendricks and looking at the things, looking at his business records and the things that he was contending with in terms of civil rights politics while advising his clients 
really put those two, uh, really put civil rights politics and then the, the business of media making and, and representing African-Americans in conversation. And it seems obvious then that I would come to John Johnson just, you know, thinking, oh, well, here's another marketer. And, and Kendrick's and Johnson's world very much overlapped. But I actually came to Johnson by considering a particular image of Dorothy Dandridge appearing on Life magazine. And that was still when I was kind of going from the image to the producer. And I tracked that image and I traced the genealogy of kind of her her becoming a mainstream Black um, sex goddess to her appearances in Ebony magazine. And then from there... Johnson came into my project where he very much belonged because, as you said, he's probably the most well-known as an African-American media maker of the 20th century. Um, And there's been some work on him. And I certainly, again, used the uh, was a beneficiary of, of work that has been done on him recently. And Gordon Parks. I'm trying to remember actually how he came in. I know that it was really through um, really looking at the Office of War Information um, photographs just generally um, because I was focused on the the Farm uh, Security Administration and just looking at those photographs, that brought me to Gordon Park. So I would like to say that I had the foresight and, you know, recognize these three, um, these three men and their you know, relation to one another, but actually I came to all three of them in a way by focusing on the images. I focused on Coca-Cola images, got to Moss Kendricks. I focused, focused on office war information images, got to Gordon Parks, focused on the images of Dorothy Dandridge and other black celebrities and got to John Johnson. And then their worlds just continued to collide in this project that I began to see of you know, representing and bla- representing black people in black life that served both black consumer and um, representation objectives and civil rights objectives, but also served advertisers and, and marketers objectives. I'd like, uh, if if we can, to dig into this question of activism a little more here. Um, early on in the book, you you make it quite clear that these men aren't really activists, at least in any conventional understanding. Uh, and you take care to distinguish the idea of civil rights work from civil rights activism. This concept of, of civil rights work is uh, is prominent throughout the book, and and the concept of work is do, is doing quite a lot of heavy lifting. Could you say a little bit more about how you view the distinction between these terms um, and where the men you look at fit within that definition? Sure, um, I'll backtrack a little and say that. You know, in doing this book, I really had to deal with my own resistance to the fact that I would be writing about the civil rights struggle in any way um, that didn't focus on activism. Right. That was that was my base for getting to this project, focusing on civil rights activism. That was what I had studied primarily through um, through my graduate studies. Um, But. You know, these men, it's not to say that they did not have, you know, civil rights uh, activist um, ideas or um, that they weren't, you know, didn't support the civil rights movement, not at all. But their primary objectives, particularly Kendricks and um, Johnson, were as capitalists. There's just no denying that if you look um, through their records and through the statements that they made at the point in time and their work. However, in doing their image work, it's my argument that they made they popularized ideas or conceptions of African Americans that aligned with um, popular ideas of what it meant to be an American citizen, what it meant to be normally American and therefore a good American. That um, that image work was really essential to the image tactics that uh, civil rights activists did, but also just the representation politics more broadly of African-Americans at this point in time and of the general public re-envisioning or reimagining, 
African-Americans and, and, and um, Black life at this point in time. So I make the statement in the introduction, I think, um, that I see civil rights work. You know, I use that term very deliberately or came to that term to distinguish it from activism, to allow for the idea that a civil rights struggle is going to involve and has involved um, necessarily, unavoidably, actions that aren't necessarily oppositional or even progressive, um, but they still contributed to sometimes explicitly and deliberately and sometimes um, coincidentally, um, they still contributed to civil rights, very clear civil rights agendas. And I, I think it's not a leap to say that an industry behind generating ideas or promoting the idea of African-Americans as valuable, integral, normal American citizens in the World War II era was useful to African-Americans' efforts to make claims about their citizenship, to make um, demands about their civil uh, their civil rights at that point in time. Thanks, Brenna. Just one more thing we should really talk about before we get into the main body of the book, and that's just how good this book looks. Uh, you know, first of all, it's one of the better covers of a book I've, I've seen for a good while. And then inside you have so many images. It's such a visual book. And of course, visuality is, is really the premise of the book. And, you know, there must be something in the region of, of probably 60 images dotted throughout. How did you choose the images? Uh, are there one or two images that favorites probably not the right word to use, but which were you know ones that were really important and that you really wanted to have as, as part of the text? You know, you're right. There are actually 61 images in the book, which you know I really have to uh, you know just take a moment to shout out to the University of Pennsylvania Press for making that possible, and then to um, uh, women who worked really hard on help, helping me get the image permissions, Stephanie Westcott and Zoe, Zoe Van Orsdell, because that process of getting all the images in the book was a whole other project in and of itself. But the story I felt really couldn't be told or told as effectively if people couldn't see the images, the representations and, and the cultural work they might have been possible possible of doing in the moment. So um, in terms of images that were really, really important to me, I'll say the cover, um, as you said, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with the cover and that all came together in the last moment. Um, you know, Coca-Cola allowing me to use the image on the cover that of, of the you know, kind of middle-class ideal family, this, this African-American young middle-class ideal family, of course, holding a Coca-Cola uh, really was the end point of the book. You know, this was where this is where the narrative of uh, represented ends up. You know, this 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 consumerist, middle class, normative black family ideal. And so, having that image in the book and on the book was very important to me. And I thank Coca Cola for allowing that to happen. There. Were, Another image that was really important to me and very hard to get is the first image in the book, which is of an African-American man, an anonymous African-American man, because his back is facing the viewer on the cover of Life magazine, riding, um, he's perched on top of uh, a stack of watermelons going to, going to the market. And for me, that image was a starting point. So the Coca-Cola image and that, that, that Life magazine image kind of bookend the the narrative of the book in terms of this process of where African-Americans get more um, access to uh, the means of communication. Um, this process, I don't want to say a, a progress, but this process in where a little bit more control or a lot more control in the image-making process resulted in very different images. I will say that since the book has been released, that image of the African-American man um, on the wagon of watermelons has what um, grabbed attention in a way that that is a little troubling to me. It's become a focal point because it's an arresting image, you know, that kind of taps some stereotypes 
but it has grabbed focus of people that I've talked to or have asked to talk to me about the book more than some of the um, other images. And I, I find that interesting. I haven't really processed that. But of course, the perhaps the most important image to me is the, the, the book, um, the image that really starts the book with the preface. And that is the image of Rosa Parks sitting on the bus um, after the Montgomery bus boycott is um, ends in December of 1956. And that again is where the project started for me. It was like, why this image of this kind of, um, you know, mild mannered, very proper, very respectable Rosa Parks, none of which isn't true, but really belies or obscures so much of her radical activist um, self and, and the nature of her activism. So I start with that image. So it was very important for me to start there, even though civil rights activism isn't the focus of my book. Um, and then there are a couple of just images that, you know, one image that I love very much is an image that Gordon Parks took of a National Youth Administration um, uh, welder trainee. It's a woman. And I just think it's a beautiful image just composition wise because it's another thing that should be appreciated about a lot of the imagery is their aesthetics you know the artistic value of some of them and that's not something that I really focus so much on but it is something to appreciate and for whatever reason I just find that image beautiful and so effective in terms of Gordon Park's objective and the 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 um, War Department's objective in presenting a particular image of of black patriotism and citizenship at that point in time. So you begin the book in in the 1930s and and the first two chapters follow Kendricks and Parks through their respective roles in New Deal, World War II era federal initiatives. And you call the different agencies or institutions that these men are part of incubators for black image makers. How do these men experience and navigate those agencies or institutions during the early period of this book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. Um, you know, I I ended up starting the. I I had to start the book in 1930, whereas you know earlier in the project and certainly with the dissertation, I was starting more directly with World War II. But it became when I started to focus more on the historical actors. When I started to focus more on the business of these men, the question became. Why did they come to these businesses? How did they come to these businesses? How was it possible for African-American men in the mid-20th century, um, particularly uh, Kendricks, who's in the South, to build successful businesses um, in a very you know, white-dominated uh, industries, uh, marketing and public relations? And again, following Kendricks, his records really took me back into the New Deal, and it became very clear that you know, in addition to what seemed to be his 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 um, you know natural proclivities towards uh, public relations and publicity, you know he had training and was surrounded by New Deal initiatives that were teaching him modeling public relations. And then, as a college student, he really began to um, participate in the field informally through efforts um, to promote black journalism. And then based on that experience, he was hired into a New Deal program. He was hired into the National Youth Administration as a PR um, to do public relations and publicity for that program, particularly around African-Americans. And my argument is that that training in um, image-making but more so for Kendricks at that point in time in managing image um, and publicity was crucial to his ability to want and get more work in that capacity, but to pitch to clients like um, Coca-Cola and Carnation later, his expertise, not only in public relations, but public relations aimed at targeted to African-Americans or focused on um, issues of black interest. And for Gordon Parks, his um, his relationship to the New Deal programs was much less uh, direct, but for the fact that 
the photography that came out of the FSA, the Farm Security Administration, had such an impact on him that it is what made him pick up a camera. And then it became the curriculum for him in terms of training himself to be a photographer. That was his lesson book and the photo books that came out of the New Deal period and and New Deal initiatives those were his textbooks. Those are what trained him to be a photographer. And again, I would argue part of why he became the only African-American in the Office of War Information in, in, its, in its propaganda photography unit um, based on that experience, because he came to it so well trained in the, the, the techniques and also the um, perspectives that the state was trying to um, trying to publicize, but then also, right, he he was an excellent photographer. He brought his own talents and his own eye to that. But that incubator sense, you know, and I have to credit um, particularly uh, um, Lauren Sklaroff for helping me see the New Deal. She describes it as this cultural apparatus, the New Deal as as this incubator for black art, really, um, in cultural production in in her um, project. And then for me, it was just very much a training program at its most practical base, particularly, again, for Kendrick's, a training program for the the enterprise that he would build or that he would um, involve in, that he would be involved in later. You also talk about how these men are able to greater and, and lesser degrees uh, to bend or, or sometimes reshape official discourses of, of citizenship or democracy that they've been promoted or th- as they're being promoted by the Roosevelt administration during the New Deal and, and World War II. How do Kendricks and push, uh, Parks push back against critique, reinforce these ideas which they're being asked to propagandize? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that's an interesting question because, you know, one of the things that I hope I... Um, do in tracing their relationship to to this the citizenship project, for lack of a better term, um, is that they shift. And I see, I think you see that most with Kendricks that when he is um, first working with the New Deal and working with the National Youth Administration, he is very much um, you know trying to push the idea of of this united. A populist and trying to revive capitalism in um, the recovery of the of the um, the economy, and so very much pitching this, trying to push against this nation within a nation idea um, of African Americans in the United States, and really trying to uh, promote African Americans' relationship to the to the the larger project that is the United States and doing that by instilling or trying to um, call on African-Americans civic duty or civic selves um, to say, perhaps, you know, you have an experienced first class citizenship, but that's not just a decision to be made by the state. That's something that we claim and we do that through these actions. Right. And so that was an interesting line for him to toe, to, to try and sell um, the New Deal to a you know a population that was distrusting of the state, um, was benefiting um, less from New Deal programs than the larger populace in some ways. And then as he moves through his career, he does very much then start to promote African-Americans as a special group, not necessarily a nation within a nation, but a special group within the um, American population, because that's useful to his, to his, um, marketing career and and promoting himself as someone who again has that expertise you know can build bridges between advertisers to african americans and particularly african american consumers and for parks he's walking a very interesting line which i write about um in the book because you know i was introduced to gordon parks as 
you know, an activist, as a as an oppositional kind of um, photographer. And in, you know, I say in the book, no one promoted that idea of himself more than Gordon Parks. And that's certainly fair in terms of looking at a lot of his photography, particularly his photography of civil rights um, actions during the 1950s. But there's no denying that he was the only African-American in this photography unit under Roy Stryker during World War II with the job of selling the war and selling a particular image of the United States and its population as united. And so he comes in as this, this photographer trained very much, um, who views, he says, you know, his camera as a weapon and has spent a lot of time photographing the South side of Chicago and, the dire living situations of a lot of African-Americans and is very much considers himself a student of Richard Wright's um, photo book, 12 12 Million Voices, which is a condemnation of racism and white America's treatment of African-Americans. So he has this activist artist self, but then has to reconcile that to the project of the, the, um, of the state. And, toes a line in which, you know, he really does that, I think, by one, keeping his Black subjects largely separate, um, you know, isolated from white environments. But also I make the point that the state's project at this point in time aligns with many African-Americans, and including Gordon Parks, in that they want to promote the reality of their being full American citizenships and in patriotic American citizenships at this point in time um, and, and important and valuable to a functioning nation. And those two projects align in such a way that Parks is able to, in some way, honor both that activist artist self and that propagandist, that state propagandist in a way that I think is more complicated than how Parks is generally um, presented in terms of his photography. And in the case of Kendricks, we see the idea of promoting the nation state or American democracy move beyond the the physical boundaries of the United States, uh, where Kendricks takes up a role in promoting Liberia. How does that happen? Um, How does Kendricks go from someone who at least superficially doesn't seem to have a particularly compelling connection to Africa or a strongly rooted sense of diaspora prior to this moment uh, to becoming essentially a salesman for and of the Liberian Republic. Yes, that, you know, that is to me just a really interesting story. And there's, there's much more to be done there. I think um, that would probably require going to Liberia, but there's no way for me, there was no way for me to write about Kendricks moving from kind of a new, uh, you know, a black new dealer, as I call him in the, in the book to this, you know, commercial marketer after the war without examining that, that, um, his work for the Republic of Liberia, because I think, as you say, there's no evidence of him having an interest in, uh, West Africa or Liberia in any way. And I think it just comes down to the fact that he was the right person in the right place at the right time because he had so much experience doing publicity by the time um, the uh, committee, um, the committee that was trying to promote and pull together the exposition for the 100th uh, anniversary of, of Liberia's independence, that he was an obvious choice and he was much, he was, he had quite a profile within black circles and particularly in the DC and Atlanta area because of the work that he was doing to promote the black press. He was the engineer, the director um, and the publicist for this, this annual um, celebration of the black press. And so he did have some um, recognition despite his still being in his 20s at that point in time. And I believe that because of that experience, um, he he was identified as someone who had an interest in and experience working with Black subjects. And I don't mean Black people, Black uh, 
issues of interest. And Hilliard Robinson, who was the director of the committee, also knew him from just, again, being in the same proximity. And he was in D.C. at the point in time that the committee formed, you know, its stateside uh, division because he had been working for the Department of Treasury doing or developing um, publicity around uh, war bonds, the sale of war bonds. So it is not, I have not discovered the moment when, you know, how it came to be that Robinson selected him. But to me, it's not, it's not a hard thing to imagine. And it seems to me that that project of, publicizing uh, the exposition and trying to convince the United States, um, U.S. leaders and politicians to invest in Liberia, you know, to financially invest in Liberia and its development after World War II is what helped him hone his ideas of, of how to fashion Black consumers um, and how to market himself, because to that point, he had only been a publicist or promoting um, nonprofit, non-commercial initiatives. And this is a point where it really comes down to the Republic of Liberia needing money. And the pitch that Kendricks has is, you know, invest in these new markets. You know, an investment in the Republic of Liberia is one, shoring up a, a, de- a democratic and independent democratic capitalist nation that can be useful um, to the United States, particularly during the early Cold War. But it is also a set of new markets, black markets for um, American industries or advertisers to invest in in the reconversion period after World War II. And I think that is the period that he very decisively goes from a nonprofit or a, a public issues uh publicist, PR person, to a marketer, to a, to a commercial marketer. That's happening during and because of his work for the Republic of Liberia. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In chapter four, then we move back to the United States and we move back to someone who in pretty much every sense is, is you know, a capitalist. He's, he's commercial. He's, he's about the commercial aspect of the business. He's about the profits. John H. Johnson known for his media empire, business empire, Johnson Publishing Company. Uh, And in chapter four, you you tread this line, or or follow Johnson rather as he treads this line, between selling readers um, a certain vision of black identity or uh, ideas to do with black sexuality and and pinup culture, uh, and then at the same time selling advertisers and investors the idea or vision of, of black domestic respectability and the quote-unquote Negro market in the shape of or, or in helping to shape the black middle class. How does Johnson and how do his publications navigate those ideas? And that's um, a great question. And, and as you kind of pointed to, complicated. It was complicated for me. As I said, you know, somewhat to my embarrassment, Johnson may have been the last person that I started really researching more because one, I thought that um, others had done, you know, a very good job of showing his business. And I think I probably was a bit intimidated about getting into the business because you have to with Johnson, you know, that he says, as I state several times in the book, he says about his um, publications when people complimented them or praised them as being historically significant. He says, you know, thanks, but I wasn't trying to make history. I was trying to make money. He is very much, you know, um, a proud capitalist. And just a side note here, it's, it, it was very interesting doing this project because time and time again, I would go and present my research and members of the audience that I was, you know, before 
almost without fail, someone would raise their hand and say something along the lines of, you know, you're, I think you're being too hard on Johnson. And, you know, I, I would ask in what manner? And it, it came down to the fact that I wasn't acknowledging, you know, his activist self, if, if I agreed that there was one and that I was really hammering home, you know, his work as a capitalist, which I always found very interesting because that's what Johnson um, took pride in. And then again, we are a capitalist society and here's this man that's been very successful. And the idea that I was somehow denigrating him by casting him as the capitalist that he was, was um, something that I tangled with, you know, all throughout the project. And, and, and even since the book has come out, but you can't understand, you can't understand the line that he was walking without understanding that he was a capitalist, that he was a businessman, that he was a businessman putting out commercial products, you know, putting out um, magazines to sell for profit, because that's where, as I say in the book, he uses certain imagery, um, specifically sexualized images of black women as a marketing tool. That's what draws readers in across all of his magazines in the mid 20th century. Um, There's just picture after picture after picture of scantily clad um, African-American women, typically light skinned, young, um, voluptuous on the covers of his magazines, his different magazines. But using those images is what allows him to build up his media empire because he can show advertisers this healthy consumer base. Um, he reveals that to advertisers. And for those, those consumers that might be put off by um, the more salacious uh, imagery, he's also offering them the images that they've been seeking, the African-Americans have been seeking that reflect their lives, reflect or their aspirations that are middle class or talk about the achievements that different African-Americans have had, um, point to black celebrities, uh, you know, um, are about fashion, all of these other things he can offer because of particular images that he used that sell, he can also inject all of these other images of blackness, um, an array of, of ideas of blackness into popular culture at this point in time. But it is a very, very fine line to walk because every time he steps across the line that his consumers have set for him in terms of how, you know, either a respectable or a safe way to represent African-Americans for a larger public to see, they really try and rein him in. Um, and so he's constantly needing to walk that line. And it shifts over time as, as you know, the country moves more into this, this classic civil rights movement period. He steps back from that more salacious material because his consumer base demands it. Um, so he is very much a businessman tracking and what um, constructing the demands or inspiring the demands of African-American consumers specifically. You've neatly outlined there how those tensions show in terms of ideas or or notions of respectability politics. You also in some ways juxtapose that quite strikingly with the ways in which uh, Jet magazine in particular, sold the idea of civil rights or demonstrated the value of image making and the power of the visual in terms of civil rights. And the the case that, that is probably most prominent here is the case of Emmett Till, the younger Chicagoan teenager who's, who's lynched in Mississippi in, in 1955. How does that work? Uh, how does Jet function as both an outlet for, uh, you know, cheesecake or proclivities or um, ideas about leisure and also this incredibly powerful and and lasting uh, image in American cultural and political history. Yeah, that was a very um, difficult part of the book for me, um, not just because of the material, um, but it was really important. And I don't know that I succeeded. It was really important for me in in writing about the Till case in relation to business decisions to not in any way, um, you know, what present that case 
as a practical matter or or to to make it an emotional an emotional less uh, uh, matter, right? And so, but that said, and this is generally when I'm and when I've um, you know presented my work, I, this was often the basis for why some would accuse me of being too hard on John Johnson. They would point to um, often they would point to Jet Magazine and how Jet was responsible for publicizing this horrific lynching of Emmett Till and what that did in terms of galvanizing African-Americans, you know, as Adam Green argues that this is a moment when, you know, African-Americans begin to imagine themselves or or come together in this, this uh, national consciousness. Um, You know, so, you know, my critics would say, you know, you're not giving him enough credit for that that role that he played in the civil rights movement or civil rights activism. And my, my argument would be that you can't give him enough credit unless you look at the decisions that he made that allowed for this story to be popularized, um, not popularized, publicized among particularly again, African-American markets because Jet Magazine, you know, I have a line in the book that that um, my father said to me about Jet Magazine and Ebony Magazine. He he always said that Ebony Magazine was what you had on your coffee table and Jet Magazine was what you had on your nightstand, which kind of speaks to the different nature of those. Ebony Magazine was for that middle class household, um, you know, gave you fashion tips, told you what were the trendy rep- the recipes told you about the all the African American first and Jet Magazine you know always again had this kind of salacious uh, cover material always a you know I shouldn't say always but almost always a uh, pinup kind of image of a an Af- African American woman and then also had its Beauty of the Week which was a centerfold uh, feature within the magazine uh, in the digest. But, you know, I think very astutely Johnson chose to publicize or to, to uh, report, just decided that the Till case would be reported through Jet because it was a weekly magazine, whereas Ebony was a monthly magazine. And Jet had a weekly circulation of, you know, nearing half a million people. And, and Ebony had a monthly circulation nearing or of half a million people, but Jet Magazine was able to track that case in the, in the, in its quickness. I mean, you know, from the lynching through the trial, through the acquittal of the, of Till's murderers happened within two months time, you know, so Jet Magazine was able to, to um, chronicle that in real time more than Ebony would be able to do so. Also though, I make the argument that, you know, those images, those pinup images are useful, again, as a marketing tool for the first attempt that Johnson makes in terms of reporting on the Till case. And then once that that content about the Till uh, lynching proves to be in much demand among African-Americans who are looking for understanding, comprehension, validation of their experience, of the anger that they feel, of the horror of it, um, that content has market value to that consumer base. And it is very profitable for John Johnson to provide it. And part of the way he knows that, however, is because of Mamie Till, Mamie Till Bradley, um, Emmett Till's mother, because she allows, you know, Chicago, essentially black Chicago to come and view her, her son's mutilated body while it's laying in state as it were. And thousands line up to do that. That demonstrated to any observer, you know, the need that people had to see Emmett Till to, to have evidence of that crime. And you know, John Johnson was definitely observing that. And so, again, the fact that it was profitable for Johnson to put that material in Jet Magazine 
week after week after week in the fall of 1955, in no way, one, says that he wasn't horrified by that case and was did not have just political or, um, you know, emotional interest in, in reporting on that case. But the fact that it was profitable for him to do so in no way takes away from its political or historical significance in galvanizing this generation called the Emmett Till generation of civil rights activists. You know, in fact, I would argue that it's precisely because of his acumen as a businessman that that is, as as one of these, um, these civil rights activists says, you know, the best advertised lynching of the 20th century and had the impact that it did in terms of you know, a national consciousness, why it lives in our national memory in a way, because right, the lynching of black, black men in particular and black boys, that is not something that is at all rare in U.S. history. But there's a reason why, in addition to Emmett Till being a boy, a young boy, there's a reason why this lynching is burned within, you know, the American memory. So what we see then through your discussion of Johnson and, and through Johnson Publishing's magazines is, is how these magazines both imagine new forms of black citizenship in the post-war era uh, and also help to critique the ways in which America is, is failing its black citizens. In the final chapter, then, we return to, to Kendricks, to Moss Kendricks, and we return to this idea of capitalism as, quote, a catalyst for black citizenship. Uh, and the, the focus here is, is Kendrick's relationship with Coca-Cola. How does that relationship start? Uh, why does it have such an lasting impact in terms of African-American representation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a point where, you know, Johnson and Kendrick's projects, you know, overlap or intersect, I should say, because Ebony, you know, presents this vehicle for advertisers to 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 target African-Americans and to target them in a way that maybe their general, meaning white, consumer base won't be privy to, which is a concern for some advertisers at the point in time. And Kendricks had this relationship to Coca-Cola, both because he was born in Atlanta, but also because he um, made money as a boy, as a caddy. And so he um, had reason to be around some Coca-Cola executives because the uh, Coca-Cola headquarters were in Atlanta. And so I don't, I am not able, I have not been able to trace that, how that relationship developed as he he grew into a man, but he is, he eventually starts making, uh, uh, he eventually starts pitching Coca-Cola in the mid forties, 1940s over and over again to, to contract him, to help them target the the African-American market, which they're not doing at that point in time. There's a delay in Coca-Cola accepting his pitch. And in early 1951, he does become, they do contract him as a marketing specialist to help them uh, bridge to African-American consumers. And what he does almost immediately is compel Coca-Cola to target African-American consumers through, through print ads, through advertising that redefines them in ways that um, adhere to what African-Americans want or think of themselves, but also adhere to what are very uh, prominent ideas of Americanness at that point in time um, that are centered around consumerism, centered around middle-class consumerism, you know, kind of that idyllic suburbanite um, picture that is now kind of the iconic image of the American dream. And he walks Coca-Cola up to that image. First, he he convinces them to use black celebrities, you know, athletes, um, musicians, singers, and actors in their advertising, and and that is that is effective. It's it's the first foray into that market. But then convinces them that African Americans want to see normal people. They're not all athletes and musicians, and they want to see themselves reflected as the type of American that is being um, advertised, how white Americans are being advertised. And so Coca-Cola begins to produce advertisements that are identical to the advertisements that they pitch to the general market. Again, the white market, you know, they just have black models in them. And 
within that post-war moment of this expanding, you know, mass consumer culture. Um, and again, in this, this, this early moment of the cold war where you have, you know, capitalism pit against communism and you have all, you know, the nation's biggest cultural institutions promoting consumerism, encouraging Americans to buy, buy, buy a picture of African-Americans or pictures of African-Americans as consumers, I argue, is really essential to constructing or establishing a consumer identity for African-Americans. Of course, African-Americans had always been consumers, but they had not been recognized or represented as such by major advertisers. And in a post-war moment, to lack a consumer identity was to be denied a crucial part of um, definition, a crucial part of what was was central to definitions of citizenship at that point in time. And so I argue that Kendrick was among a small, uh, a handful of of black market specialists who helped establish that consumer identity, and then also to popularize consumerist picture, consumer pictures of African Americans where they're shopping in their in their you know again, their middle-class homes and wearing the latest fashions or barbecuing, you know, in moments of leisure. And all of these help promote this idea of African-Americans as being quintessentially American, as it was defined at that point in time. Um, and, and then became a standard for how to, at, at, in that moment, in the 1950s, of how to represent African-Americans. You have other companies following suit in their advertising, and then other companies also trying to hire Kendricks, um, Carnation Foods being one, hiring Kendricks to do the same for them, to help them figure out how to how to promote that particular idea, how to satisfy Black consumer demands or represent, representation, representational demands, excuse me, um, in their in their marketing so that they can build their their Black consumer base. And, you know, one of the things that I realized or, again, have have contended with is that some people assume that or some people, I shouldn't say assume, they've read the material and they take away from it that I am celebrating capitalism as this route to citizenship rather than pointing to the fact that I believe it would have been impossible or or not impossible. It was highly effective for African-Americans to pursue particular images of themselves through the market. Um, And to not do so would have been hard, um, but also would have been to not take advantage of really powerful resources available to them. That said, you know, the images that come out of, say, Kendrick's uh, projects with Coca-Cola are, are not without their problems. You know, they, they solidify a particular idea of blackness that becomes acceptable um, or is elevated above, you know, other realities or other, other forms of black life in a way that is very exclusionary in you know, it would be wrong to think that I come to the conclusion at the end of this book that, you know, oh, you know, driving media images through the market, that's the key. That's the key to black freedom or, or civil rights. Because I would contend that, in fact, many issues that African-Americans or black America faces face today in terms of their black freedom struggles can be can be traced back to some of the exclusionary ideas or some of the terms that were set up by the representational tactics of both activists and black um, market-based image makers in the post-war moment that, that now African-Americans or, or people of color are contending with some of those terms when they are making demands, um, making demands in different areas of their life. So my argument is only to recognize that capitalism was a catalyst for new 
images of blackness in this point in time and and for very um to me very evident reasons i think that's a really eloquent way to to sum up the overall argument um I want to come back to one of the final points in this book. I think it might be the final line, in fact. Uh, and you say, we, w- we would do well to remember that after World War II, in addition to the Bible on the nightstand, many African-Americans had ebony on the coffee table and Coke in the fridge. And the way that, that reads is is quite an ambivalent statement. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. Um, this project you know, is is messy and ambiguous, and one of its real strengths is the way that you embrace the kind of uh, murkiness of of these different men in terms of their position within the movement and their relationship to to ideas of protest and, and to ideas of capitalism. Uh, and and through doing that, you you kind of push back against this often binary representation of civil rights or of you know victimhood or heroism. These these narratives that are so ingrained within the way that we consume civil rights as a, as a history and people like johnson uh parks kendricks through this book it, it becomes clear that they're complicit in a certain system of production but they're also helping to make the lived experiences of african-americans better and and this this tension or this kind of multivalent impact um is something that is is never really resolved and, and perhaps it can't be resolved um if you, if you could speak to that Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, you know, it's really encouraging to me to hear you, um, to hear that that's what you come away with, you know, and, and I have that ambivalence, you, you know, that, that last sentence speaks to my ambivalence. Again, as I said, you know, I've had, um, again, my critics would say, you know, the people who have criticized my work um, going along and, and not in any, you know, traumatic way or anything, but um, criticisms that I have had to contend with are again that idea of being too hard on either the black image makers or earlier when I would talk about, you know, say the the image of Rosa Parks that she helped um, construct of herself being limiting, you know, both in terms of recognizing her um, her activities at the time, but then certainly as it lives on, you know, this 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 um, Rosa Parks doll that Mattel has just put out, you know, that's a further enshrining of that kind of, you know, mild manner, accidental activist idea. And, you know, and people have said to me, well, what were they supposed to do? You know, as if I'm, as if my, I'm implying that they were naive or, or, or there was something else they should have been doing. And that's, that, that is not all, that is not at all my, um, my, contention, rather that to use or to look at what they did to, to understand the historical circumstances that made those legitimate choices, right? That it was most politically expedient to cast yourself in particular ways, to cast yourself as a middle-class suburbanite in a post-war moment. You know, that was, that was an immediate, politically expedient in the immediate, the immediacy of their of their needs at that point in time, for me that's that's useful information about the historical circumstances, but it, that they lived in. But it's also very useful for me in terms of understanding where we are now, right? And that and the questions I have is one: How would you not anyone in the United States? How would you not advance your politics through the market, right? And that's one of the criticisms that I have generally of, of the civil rights historic historiography up until recent years is, you know, this isolated treatment of the civil rights struggle and, and African-Americans contained or isolated in the civil rights struggle after World War II, while the rest of the country are consumers, while the rest of the country is, you know, um, in this, this battle with communism or, you know, active agents in capitalism, right? Keeping those two things separate, you know, is is hard, I think, you know, given the fact that of course they, they weren't. So one, how would you advance your politics or your representational politics without going through the market or without having to contend to the market? And then the bigger question or the thing that keeps me up at night, you know, certainly while I was doing this project is can you possibly, you know, present or, or put forth a liberating image 
of Blackness within a capitalist, or I should say within the capitalist United States that we live in now, or, or in the mid 20th century. That's, you know, that to me is the question. That's what I kept really struggling with and trying to understand as I was writing this book. So it's not this triumphalist, like, look at the progress. We went from this guy, you know, on the watermelon wagon to, you know, these black people sitting on a living, you know, sitting in their living room holding Coca-Cola. You know, it's more about, you know, what does it mean that to move away from a stereotypical, um, you know, image of black anonymity to an, an image of African-Americans seemingly, you know, that, that values their subjectivity or at least their Americanness, that it needs to um, elevate a particular idea, you know, to the expense of many African-Americans and, and non-whites actual lived experience at the time or since. You've been listening to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. A reminder that the book discussed in today's episode, Represented, is out now, so consider picking up at your local independent bookstore or wherever you get your books. For Brenna Greer, I'm your host James West, and we hope you'll stop by again soon.